Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Q&A. I'm Dr. Helena Gazelka. We're recording this podcast on January the 18th, 2021. COVID vaccinations continue throughout the United States and access to the vaccine was expanded last week in many states to include individuals age 65 or over. The goal is to get more people vaccinated quickly, but this accelerated rollout is not without its challenges. Here to discuss all of this with us today is our favorite expert on the COVID-19 vaccine, Dr. Greg Poland, who visits with us weekly. Welcome. Thanks for being here, Greg. Good morning. So good to see you this week. And you too. Well, let's start out with a, an update on the vaccine rollout. What have you got to tell us this week? Yeah, well, you know, uh, something a little over 12 million doses of vaccine have actually been administered and about three times that have actually been distributed. So I think we're going, you know, we're picking up the pace post-holiday, and I think that's very good news. It is a complicated logistical nightmare, really, when you think about it. You have two different companies, soon to be four different companies, which will really increase the number of doses available, you know, providing vaccine to the United States government, to a central authority. You've got, well, I think it's three, little over 3,000 counties and territories. And so it goes to the state, then to the county. So you have thousands of decision makers about where vaccines are going to be given, what time, and a lot of them have been giving them at kind of banker's hours, if you will. Um, having not thought through venues, there's some logistical difficulty related to the cold chain that's necessary. So, you know, the way I would put it is a lot of kinks that got worked out and then the holidays within that. And now you're seeing a plan for a million doses a day that will be administered. I think that's very achievable. Um, and the, 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 produ the production of the vaccine is just going to accelerate and accelerate so very quickly here over the next months. I think we're, anybody who wants a dose is going to be able to get one. That is amazing, Greg. And the, the logistics of distributing this are absolutely incredible. And, you know, there's much discussion about that. I'm in Minnesota, so discussion here, other states as well. But I think that really it is remarkable. However, it is still concerning the number of cases that we are seeing and the number of deaths that we are seeing. How long is it going to take before this vaccine has an effect on the number of cases? And when are we going to start seeing the caseload go down because people are vaccinated? Yeah, you know, that, that's uh, really an issue around herd immunity. And recent evidence suggests that herd immunity may not be reached with these highly transmissible variants until we are at excess of 80 to maybe even 90% immunity. Now we were thinking around 70%, but there's a city in Brazil where there were, was evidence that, that about 76% of them had immunity because of the terrible outbreaks they've had and still they were accumulating cases. So I do think, and it's, it's an important message that you and I have stressed uh, over the last year is that this idea of wearing a mask physical distancing and getting your vaccine, that combination, not just one of those things, that combination is going to be key to defeating this virus. And, 
you know, the, the current estimates are that uh, in the next four weeks, we'll probably have about another 100,000 deaths. I mean, it's stunning when you think about it. That is sobering. About one out of, of every 860 Americans has now died of this. My wife and I went to the grocery store. We had to go Friday night at 10 p.m. thinking, you know, that's a safe time to go. There were four or five people in that grocery store not wearing a mask. You drive by restaurants or bars and they're crowded. People traveling. It, it's just, uh, it, it's nonsensical. I saw a headline last week, Greg, that said that COVID-19 was a leading cause of death in the United States. Yes, that just came out in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And, you know, I thought about that, that it, how remarkable that is to be uh, a greater killer of Americans than heart disease and cancer. And I, I sort of thought of it in the reverse terms. If I said to you, look, wear a mask and you won't get cancer or heart disease, would you do it? Absolutely. What if I said, what if I said get two doses of this vaccine and you won't get cancer or heart disease, would you do it? And yet this, just as an example of how people don't think rationally sometimes, this, this set of things that we've talked about, hands, face, space, and a vaccine is exactly that. It will prevent you from dying of the leading cause of death in the US. That's remarkable. Uh, Greg, tell us a little bit about what's happening in the rest of the world. How are other countries doing in rolling out the vaccine uh, compared with the United States and in managing their COVID uh, numbers? Yeah, you know, it's, it's of course, quite a spectrum. Uh, we've seen countries like uh, Taiwan, uh, Australia lately, uh, New Zealand, and others who have really uh, defined a very rational national response do very well. We've seen other countries do very poorly. It tends to do, have to do with the quality of the scientific input into that national policy. Interesting. Um, I, th I think the other thing we've seen is some countries doing much better with the rollout of vaccines. For example, Israel has done a fantastic job. Germany, very much accelerating their pace. Um, in the lower income countries, it's a much sadder story. Um, when you take all of those countries together, as the WHO director said, we're in the midst of a, of, a, of a moral injury. The total number of doses given in some of those third world countries, I don't like that term, but you know, lower income countries, is 25. Wow. Not 25,000, 25. And yet wow. we have people here in the US with access to a vaccine who refuse it. Wow, that is, that is a number I had not heard before. That is really amazing. You mentioned a little bit earlier that we're talking about uh, nearly four vaccines now because there's work being done by Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca. Give us some updates, Greg, on where those vaccines stand. Yeah, I'm really encouraged about this. Um, I was on a phone call with, the, with Operation Warp Speed on Friday a small group of us uh, kind of getting the latest information about th where things are. The expectation is that by the end of this month, by the end of January, 
uh, it's very likely that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine will come forward to the FDA for emergency use authorization, just as the Pfizer and Moderna did, and probably within a week of that, uh, get that, that EUA. Followed probably uh, in the February-March timeframe by that same process happening for the AstraZeneca. Now, what's interesting probably to our listeners is that Pfizer and Moderna are, are mRNA vaccines. The Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca are a different platform. They're what are called adenovirus or a common cold virus, adenovirus vectored vaccines. So um, this will not only increase dramatically the number of uh, COVID vaccines available, but to some degree, the ability to choose perhaps between them. Greg, is there anything known about whether when these, um, the virus continues to mutate, whether the different approach of the different vaccines might be more effective against that? You know, no, no nothing about the vaccines themselves. They seem to all be about equally effective. One thing we think, this is early, we're not positive, but it may be that the Johnson & Johnson will be one dose. Now, not only is that logistically simpler, but as you alluded to, Helena, one of the key things in decreasing the amount of death, hospitalization, and number of cases is decreasing the number of infections. The new variants are about 50% more transmissible. But if you can imagine, if you can get people immune after one dose of a vaccine, and if you can roll out enough vaccine, we will begin, probably not till after March or so, we'll begin to see these decrease. But the real concern, and you put your finger right on it, is the devastating effect that it's very likely these variants are going to have. And these variants arise from transmitting this virus through millions of people, and it accumulates mutations. And that's not a good thing for us. Greg, we've been doing a lot of communicating here at Mayo Clinic, both internally to our staff and externally to uh, patients in the community about uh, vaccine hesitancy. Hmm. So uh, what would you say to an individual who says, well, if we don't yet know how long the immunity from these vaccines lasts, why should I even bother getting it now? Uh-huh. Well, um, you know, we do know that they're, they're, you know, again, by definition, we've only had a certain month, certain number of months since the vaccine was uh, started uh, to be used. And we do know that it has been effective through that. So at a minimum, it's going to be as effective as a flu vaccine is through a year time period. We don't know past that. And I'm speculating a bit to go up to as long as a, as a year. But I think that the threat is now. So when you're faced with an immediate threat, you take immediate steps to protect your health and the health of those around you. And I think that's the justification for taking a vaccine where the science shows that it is safe and it is extraordinarily effective. Nonetheless, I, I do have uh, uh, sympathies with people who have, uh, uh, vaccine hesitancy, or I think a better word for it is 
may have questions about the vaccine. I think it's good to be skeptical. I think it's good to ask questions and to seek to understand. The difficulty occurs when after you've been given the information and evaluated that information to then reject the vaccine on a non-scientific basis or on some sort of emotional feeling about it is not a wise choice, particularly in the midst of a pandemic fire that we're seeing. Setting aside the um, obvious that um, individuals will suffer uh, various severities of COVID-19 if they actually contract the virus, um, there are those who I have heard say, uh, I might as well just get the virus because I'm going to have immunity anyway. Uh, is that a valid, valid argument in comparison with the vaccine? Well, the, no, I, I don't think so. And for this reason, when you get the disease, it's not just you. You are at very high risk of transmitting that to others. That's why we have the pandemic. This is a highly transmissible disease. And I think that's something people sometimes don't consider. It's a, to use a well-worn phrase, it's not just about you, it's about us. So that's one issue. The second issue that I think we're, we're learning more and more about it is that it turns out that about a third of people who develop COVID end up with longer term consequences, even if they had mild disease. Um, those can include neurologic effects primarily and fatigue, uh, ample evidence of people saying that they've suffered confusion, they've had difficulty concentrating or focusing, not been able to work, so fatigued they can't get out of bed and go to work. These are real risks that real people face and you don't get to choose whether or not you're gonna have one of those complications. The virus will choose for you. So Greg, what you just mentioned about people having difficulty with thinking and this kind of brain fog, um, is that related to the immune system in some way or what causes that? Yeah, that's the, yeah you're, you're, you're right, Helena. That's the hypothesis is that this is very likely due to one or a combination of things. We know that blood clotting is increased when people develop COVID. So could there be strokes, multiple small strokes? Could there be death of those brain cells or inflammation of the blood vessels supplying the brain or some evidence of persistent immune activation that could be causing that? The precise cause out of those is not yet pinpointed but it probably lies in that arena. Greg, tell me about this theory that the gut um, biome, microbiome has some effect on um, the long haulers disease uh, or people who suffer effects for a long period of time. Yeah, you know, there's been some very interesting data about it. And by the way, this is true for every infection. It's true for uh, responses to multiple vaccines. Turns out your gut microbiome, and that just simply means the totality of the different percentages and different bacteria that you have in your, your colon, in your GI tract, does impact your immune response and your well being and your response to vaccines and diseases. So there's begun to be evidence now with COVID of different 
bi microbiomes in people who are developing long-term complications or in people who have severe versus mild disease. So a lot of work left to do in that area, but I'm not surprised by it in that we had already noted that with other vaccines and other diseases. So not something that we can currently test for or conclusively. No, um, but, but there is but there is one there is one caution that comes out of that. Taking antimicrobials, antibiotics, at least temporarily, does change your microbiome. Now, this is interesting, and us as scientists have taken note of this. This may be one of the reasons that um, people who take antibiotics without evidence of a bacterial infection who are being treated for COVID, and you remember that uh, azithromycin, a whole host of antibiotics were being, you know, bandied about as potential treatments, may in fact have done worse because of the alteration in their gut microbiome. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And we've been preaching for so long not to give uh, antibiotics where there may be viruses far, far before COVID-19. So that's Absolutely. a very Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's another argument of you know, we do things so far as ever possible based on scientific study, not on anecdote, not on, well, I think this might help, or this happened in a laboratory dish. Those are just evidences to go forward and test something before you start using it in humans. So Greg, getting back to the vaccine for just a moment, I've been seeing uh, more and more about concerns about fertility, and I've even uh, heard some some you know discussion amongst Mayo Clinic employees that the vaccine uh, may have an effect on uh, fertility. Can you talk uh, to us a little bit about that and whether that's a valid concern? Well, in a in a uh, facetious way, the the benefit of the vaccine on fertility is that it allows you to live, and, and therefore you can <laughs> go benefit. on you can go on and have a family. Now I'm being a bit facetious, but for a reason. There are an endless number of these concerns that, that pop out of nowhere seemingly, and for which there are no data. And I think it's a grave disservice to people because they become concerned about something for which there's no evidence of concern. So there is no evidence, there is no evidence at this time of any interference with fertility as a result of vaccine. On the contrary, there is ample evidence of interference of fertility, particularly in men who get infected with COVID. Good studies showing degradation in sperm quality, sperm motility, semen quality, which are indicators that adversely affect fertility. We don't have that evidence in females yet, but uh, there's no reason to think of any detriment from any vaccine on fertility, just the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Um, Greg, last fall, I think, when we had spoken, you talked about this phenomenon that this year we were likely going to see um, less flu, influenza, and less of the other respiratory viruses. Now, um, that seems to be true. And I've heard uh, multiple people say, well, is that an argument 
against masking if we're still if spreading COVID-19, but we're not spreading these other um, viruses, does that mean that there's something different about COVID that, and that the masks aren't really helping that? Yes, a keen insight. There is something different. And that difference is the much greater transmissibility of COVID and for people who have COVID, the much greater number of viral particles that they release compared to rhinovirus, pertussis, which is a bacterial infection, influenza, seasonal coronaviruses. So, so again, the differences with all those other kind of common colds, they are lower numbers of viral par particles and don't have the same level of transmissibility compared to SARS-CoV-2. So that's why in the, I mean, it's an amazing experiment when you think about it at the global level. I have never in my career, in fact, to be sure, I went back and checked, never in recorded human history has the burden of influenza and other common cold viruses been so low. So it, it's an argument for just how effective these masks are. Perfectly effective, no, and people don't wear them perfectly. But outside of that, it was enough to suppress influenza. I mean, in Minnesota, there had been something like 22 cases a week ago, instead of the normal 6,000 or so cases that we would have expected. I mean, it's a stunning difference. But again, the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus is much more transmissible. So while if we didn't wear masks, we'd see many, many more cases. We saw that happen in Sweden, for example. Um, we have decreased it with masking. Now, there's a potential and perhaps theoretical um, negative to it. Some people have argued that if we don't keep getting infected with these common cold viruses, that when we don't wear masks, will we see a rebound in those infections? Uh, I don't really think so. And in fact, what I think is likely to happen is that people are gonna take much more seriously the need for seasonal influenza and other vaccines. I think, or at least I hope, that much like a number of the Asian countries, we will more commonly wear masks during influenza outbreaks and prevent that misery, the hospitalizations and deaths that occur. I was gonna suggest, Greg, as well, that probably not just masks, correct? Probably this emphasis that we've placed on cleaning your hands everywhere you go with alcohol uh, yeah. solutions and giving space to individuals yes. who, who yes. may be ill uh, probably is beneficial as well. You know, it's an, it's an interesting thing and it has illustrated, though many of us have warned about it for decades, we take for granted the extraordinary number of hospitalizations and deaths some years, 100 children die. We've had up to 90,000 adults die from influenza. And we just accept that. When it's clear now, after, in a sense, this, quote, experiment of wearing masks, that that need not happen. Which brings to mind for me, Greg, what is the, um, do you have any idea what percent of the population typically gets immunized for influenza each year? 
Yeah, it really depends on age group and geographic location. So when you look at people 65 and older, so the Medicare population, which I just joined, um, <laughs> it wow. turns it turns, out that, yeah, it turns out that when you look by state, the rates are between about 50 to 70, as, as high as 70%. And Minnesota, by the way, is a leader. If you look at another group where it's recommended, pregnant women and adolescents and younger adults who have risk factors because of medical conditions they have, we do very poorly, sometimes 20%, 30%. So it's unfortunate. Um, I, should, I should reveal that you are talking to the architect of the national recommendation. I made this recommendation many years to CDC and finally they accepted it in 2010 that all Americans age six months and older receive influenza vaccine every year. And we've still got a long way to go to achieving that. Wonderful. Well, I'm glad that we give you a little uh, bandwagon here to, to um, make that point, to make that state your case. Um, Greg, looking at the big picture, do you think that what we have learned about COVID-19 during this pandemic will uh, lead us to um, work on other coronavirus vaccines? And where, where do you see this going in the future? You know, one of two ways one optimistic and one pessimistic. The nature of humankind, and I have survived so far four pandemics in my lifetime. The nature of human reasoning is that as soon as it's over, we tend to deny the reality. I mean, you know, we had a pandemic in 2009. We've had three coronaviruses cross the species barrier, and yet, you can argue we were not prepared at the level that we should have been. We tend not to take it for the serious reality it is. Now, the other side of the coin that makes me optimistic, we have learned that we can protect against these viruses and other types of viruses, Zika, Ebola. Um, this, is, this is not a virus, but Lyme disease um, by vaccination. So it has stimulated the field of vaccinology. We're bringing new technology like mRNA vaccines where we can develop these things quickly and where we find that they're safe and effective. So uh, I think we will do that. There has been, and, and you may be aware of this, there's been research being conducted now for a so-called pan-coronavirus vaccine. This is very exciting to us. The idea behind this is, could one develop a vaccine against essentially all variants of coronavirus and seasonal coronaviruses? Could one combine that with influenza, pan-influenza vaccines? So the idea being that you would get a shot that would protect you against all influenza, all coronaviruses, and maybe you would get that vaccine we don't know yet, three times, five times in a lifetime, and that's it. Wouldn't that be remarkable? That's, that would be a remarkable human achievement. Remember, we did this with smallpox. We eradicated a plague on humankind. This is doable. If we are smart and we invest the, the, into, into the research, this is doable. 
That's great. That's encouraging news. Yeah. Greg, I had heard a rumor that the CDC or there was going to be distribution maybe after you had your vaccine of a card stating that you'd finished your um, series of vaccines. And um, do you know anything about that? And do you think that would be a value? I've heard um, that perhaps it would be shown to allow people to uh, participate in activities uh, that they otherwise might not or travel on airplanes, et cetera. So here's my card. Um, this is kind of an early prototype of it. So I got my CDC immunization card and Mayo and other top um, uh, initiatives and initiators are looking at developing such a system. The idea being that uh, it may well be that before you can travel to certain locations or go to certain places or engage in certain activities that you would need to prove that you had gotten vaccine. At one level, that's a very reasonable thing. And it, it, it recognizes the interest that states and others have in protecting the health of their population. So this, this idea of a vaccine card um, is I think a very interesting one because it would tell us you've been vaccinated against these disease. Go on through customs line. Whereas if you haven't, you represent a risk to that population. You're free to make your choices, but you're not free to travel to other locations and spread the disease, for example. That's the thinking behind it. Um, and so you know, I applaud the idea the uh, actual operational rollout of something like that, of course, will have uh, expected and maybe even unexpected glitches that we'll have to overcome. But I think it's an excellent idea, much like the registries we have for uh, children, so that we can know when people move, when they go to different places, when they seek healthcare, other places, whether what their immunization history is. I think we can already hear the arguments on both sides sure. uh, for that, but it is true that you do have to show proof of your vaccinations for um, employment sometimes yeah. or for, for other things too. You so. know, you want to travel to certain places, you may have to show immunity to yellow fever or to meningococcal disease if you go right. uh, during the Hajj, for example. So uh, these things have public health value. The, the question is, how do you do it in a way that doesn't otherwise infringe on people's privacy. Well, that's great, Greg, really interesting. Uh, Any last words for us today? You know, I, I think I would just um, make the point again that preventing these variants, and these are really important. Some of the modeling shows that when you hold everything steady, okay, and let's say you increase the lethality of the virus by 50% in those models, you go from 129 deaths a month in a city to just under 200. If instead of doing that, you increase the transmissibility of the virus by 50%, and that's what these variants are, you increase the number of deaths from 129 a month in a city to 1,000 a month. So the goal becomes, how do you suppress or prevent more of these variants from arising, some of which could be extraordinarily, extraordinarily lethal if we're not careful. And, it, and, the, and the key is simple, prevent transmission. How is that going to happen? By the ways you and I and many others have been talking about, wearing a mask properly, physical distancing, hand washing 
to some degree and getting a vaccine. That is our way out of this. Hands, face, face, and vaccine. Yes. We've already had some uh, listeners uh, writing us in little uh, clever ideas for that, Greg. So. Oh, I think we should encourage that. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, we need so a contact. Make that flow better. That would be great. <laughs> thanks so much, Greg, for being here today. Pleasure. Our thanks to Dr. Greg Poland, uh, infectious disease vaccine and virology expert at the Mayo Clinic for being with us again today to give us our weekly update on COVID-19 and particularly on vaccines. I hope that you learned something. I know that I did. We wish you a wonderful day. Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of the Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all Mayo Clinic podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Then click on podcasts. Thanks for listening and be well.